Well, it's the time of year to think about EcoFarm. And if you don't know EcoFarm, and you're a listener to this podcast, you ought to know EcoFarm. There's an event that you can attend. And if it's past time for the event, just go to EcoFarm. And it's eco-farm.org. And they'll have the information on previous events, on information that they have available to you, on speakers. You really should be trying to be a part of this EcoFarm journey. Again, it's eco-farm.org. And enjoy today's podcast with a keynote speaker at EcoFarm. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Agriculture has its ups and downs, and I'm fortunate today to talk to somebody that's looked at all of them. He's looked at ups, he's looked at downs, and we're going to talk about the future of agriculture, and um, hopefully we've got more ups ahead of us. And I want to welcome Mark Arox. Uh, Mark, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Nice to be with you, Roger. Mark, I have to start off by saying how much I appreciate what you've done. You've written some fabulous books that have looked at agriculture, particularly in a California perspective. And uh, and I just read through the um, the, the dreamt land. And and you take a sweep in of the uh, back to the beginning. I mean, you did start when there <laughs> yeah. indigenous people here. You didn't go, if I recall, you didn't really start before the people, but you you did it indigenous people here, and you paraded us through when we were Spain, when we were Mexico, when um, we had wheat farms, we had gold rushes. We've had earthquakes, we've had fires, we've had drought. This book began in the last drought, which was the 2012, 2011 to 2016 drought, depending on how you want to count those winters. And, uh, and I was on the land trying to figure out, you know, what was going on. How, how could it be that in the midst of drought, Farmers were growing bigger. They were planting more almonds, more pistachios, and more mandarins. It sounded not only counterintuitive, it sounded like a form of madness that, um, you know, in a time of scarcity, they would be growing their footprint even larger. And I thought, where, where did this all begin, this, this kind of ethos of extraction? This, uh, the, and, and, you know, obviously, it, it began in a supercharged way with the gold rush, right? I mean, that was the extraction model of California, you know, being put down. And, uh, but, but really when you look at the taking of the resources of California, you have to go back even before the gold rush. The first resource that was taken was the body of the indigenous. You know, when, when those missions were done by father Sarah and his, and, and his men, um, they took the body of the Indian, and through that taking, they were able to seize the first snowmelt to irrigate the first farms. So that's where it all begins. I mean, you know, 
California, this incredible experiment, you know, where, where we, you know, we erected a system, the grandest water moving system in the history of man, mankind, womankind. You know, that all begins with genocide, the genocide of the indigenous. That's sobering right there. You try to figure out, um, try to be a podcast host someday and respond to somebody that puts genocide out in front of you. That's how we get from there to modern agriculture. It's a huge, yeah. huge step. With the missions, I, I got to have you explain just a little bit more, though, because when the, when the Spanish came in and the missions were were established in California. Were they in all case forced to participate as a part of the mission community? Were these, were the indigenous people kind of brought at bayonet point in literally into physically into missions and forced to comply or was it more subtle than that? Well, this is a debate we've had for 200 years. I mean, and, and, and it's, it's a, it, we, we had it again when, when the Catholic church decided to turn Junipero Cerro into a saint. I mean, many of the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the progeny of the indigenous found that to be completely, um, you know, insulting a kind of degradation of their history. You know, it was a combination of a bunch of different things. Um, it was building a mission and, um, and building an early agriculture that provided a kind of, um, incentive, you know, that, 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 that would encourage the natives to come to this. Uh, so there was some subtle kind of encouragement. There was a buying off. There was, um, you know, um, actual force things happening as well. And it all turned into this kind of, um, you know, a form of slavery, let's face it. Uh, um, it, it, yeah, there, there are all sorts of exonerations that the Catholic church has tried to come up with and, and some mis- make more sense than others, but, um, no, we, we would take up this cod podcast and three others to try to reckon with that history and the instruments that were used to coerce, to wheedle, to, 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 you know, uh, coax, the natives into that whole experiment. Um, what it ended up unleashing was a genocide in three acts. It was the Spanish missions, which was kind of, was, which brought them in. Then it was Mexico's occupation for what a quarter century. And then finally the American seizure of California that where the the last acts of this genocide, this very protracted genocide, took place. Well, we're going to move on through history. One one side note that I think is finding uh, interesting right now, maybe uh, appropriate and a, a small gesture, uh, is that throughout communities in California now, there's a, there is a move to recognize who was there first, which is again a, a small step. It's not maybe a lot of action, but I know that in city governments and county governments, and uh, I've even been to a wedding ceremonies where there were acknowledgement of the indigenous heritage of, of the area, who were the tribes that were there, and and some in some cases a, a blessing in a wedding that I attended that was making sure of some some statement pulling from that that heritage and i know that doesn't 
do much to can't really solve the problems of history. But it's interesting that we're coming back and there's more people that want to understand uh, that story. Uh, and, and but you're right. We yeah, I mean, I mean, doing hundreds of podcasts on. on yeah, this. no, no. You know, when I wrote the story of Tulare Lake, Tulare Lake was the biggest body of freshwater west of the Mississippi. If you looked at the at the map of early California, that lake was the most dominant feature on the map. That lake um, uh, was the terminus of four rivers, basically the San Joaquin, you know, the the, the Kings, the Cahuilla, the Tule, and the Kern. Okay, they didn't flow out like the San Joaquin and the Sacramento into the ocean. They ended up, um, you know, flowing to this this bowl, this shallow bowl. And 880 square miles of California was Tulare Lake, and four tribes of Yokuts lived along its shores, fished its lake, um, extraordinary culture there. And what happened was that lake got drained dry by the early diverters of the rivers, mostly Southern Confederates who came to the San Joaquin Valley to farm after the gold rush, and they drained the river. Uh, but it's still in, in heavy snow melt years would come back. Well, what happened is in the 1920s, these Southern cotton growers, you know, got chased off their plantations by the boll weevil. And some of them came West and established their, their cotton growing, um, plantations in the Tulare Lake bottom, the Boswell family. I mean, that's the story of the King of California. Uh, J.G. Boswell and the making of a secret American empire and right there it. in that. Yeah. in that Tulare Lake, I wrote it with a, a friend of mine uh, named uh, Rick Wartzman. Um, and um, so, so yeah. And, and when I was growing up in the San Joaquin Valley, I always wondered what made it Southern. It, it didn't feel like uh, Los Angeles. It didn't feel like San Francisco or even Sacramento. It had a sense of the South. And, and, and I thought, well, okay, this is the, this is the legacy of that Oki, that white Oki migration that, that came in the Dust Bowl. But no, it went further back. It went back to the 1910s and 1920s with the Boswells coming to Tulare Lake. And it went back even earlier after the gold rush, the 1880s and 1890s, when these Southern Confederates came to places like Visalia and Fresno. Um, and started the early agriculture of this place. Well, you can go even further south and into into Mexico, and and some of when the Spanish were coming up, and and you started having huge land holdings and people that were ending up controlling, like you were talking about, like a million acres. Uh, it's it's just you know the the yeah. scale uh, from the beginning was very different from, you know, when I grew up in the Midwest in the Corn Belt area, everybody got started. They came here from, they came there from Europe for the most part, and they got 80 acres of a land grant and they basically just farmed it and waited for the 40 inches of rain to come whenever God decided it was time to rain. And uh, so much different than a perspective here in California. Yeah, I mean, let's look at the development of agriculture in California. So when I'm driving this San Joaquin Valley, I am driving um, on land that is the most altered landscape by human hand in history. Okay, this is what geologists call the San Joaquin Valley. 
It's not flat in its natural state. Okay, that was an, uh, 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 this epic leveling by uh, this implement called the Fresno scraper. I mean, they turned six million acres into something like a you know the top of a, a pool table. It was that you know that's how water glided in the days of furrow irrigation. So how did that happen? Well, so we have the, 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 the early farms in, in, in a, during the Spanish time, and then the, the Californios, a kind of weird combination of uh, during Mexico's time in California, they're a weird, weird, weird mix of Mexican, Spanish, and even uh, American. They end up, the Castro family, the Alvarado family, all these families they ended up with a million acres of ground. Okay. And they had these, uh, you know, these huge ranches with cattle. Then the gold rush happens and the industrialists who make money off of gold, um, they, they decide, well, that gold experiment can't last because it's polluting the rivers and it's polluting the alluvial plains of the rivers where early agriculture is starting. So, the the uh, there's a Supreme Court case that basically shuts down the mining operations, and these industrials who are living on Knob Hill in San Francisco decide, okay, now it's time to buy the ground in the hinterlands, and so they buy up hundreds of thousands of acres, millions of acres of farmland in the middle of California, and they plant a single crop, wheat, and for fifteen twenty years, California is producing more wheat than any place in the world. And they're shipping that wheat to Liverpool and it's called California golden velvet or something like that. But that monoculture starts robbing from the soil. So as fast as the wheat culture rises, it withers. And then what comes in its place? Well, this is the discovery of, wow, we've got this magical soil here. If it's treated correctly, we've got great sun. We've got water. Yes. This valley qualifies as a desert in terms of rain because it gets, you know, around 10 inches of rain a year, but it's got five rivers running through it, two of them mighty. And we can take that snow melt, corral it, and we could create a smaller kind of agriculture. And that begins in the 1880s. It brings my grandfather here, a survivor of the genocide in Turkey. He's an Armenian. He comes in 1920. And he starts off as a, a fruit picker, and but in three years, he's able to buy his own acres. And, and he has a turbine pump, which has just been invented. So if he's, you know, in areas where you want to farm where there isn't river flow or ditch flow or canal flow, you just plant your little turbine pump and you start taking up from the ground. And this was this flourishing of, you know, re re really the most magnificent agricultural experiment in history. And the problem was it kept growing and growing and growing. The pump allowed you to move onto land that was more marginal. Today, drip irrigation allows you to farm ground that really shouldn't be ground, uh, shouldn't be farmed. It's not fertile ground. There's no real groundwater beneath. Okay. I mean, there's, there's no river there running there and the groundwater, if it's beneath is hundreds, if not thousands of feet beneath. And so we're, we're moving now back to the industrialists. 
Um, small farming is giving way to bigger and bigger concentrations of ownership. And now we have hedge funds, pension funds, the Canadian Royal Mounties, the Mormon Church. I mean, these, they're buying up vast tracts of ground, planting more and more acres of almonds and pistachios and mandarins. And we have this kind of nth degree of farming that is, cannot be sustained. It's, it's just, it's too much extraction, not enough water. And we're facing this kind of limit line for really the first time in California history. Well, about the same time that your your family came over, we had all these other folks that came in that thought they were ready for a challenge and tackle some impossible things. You, you talk about uh, the Portuguese that were coming from the Azores. You, there were uh, many uh, Dutch farmers that had an experience with moving water and so forth. And uh, so many that have come from around the world and thought they could tackle it. But what you've just posed, Mark, is much more daunting in a lot of respects. I mean, this this state uh, has dealt with forest fires and, and floods and earthquakes and, and so forth. But we also are dealing with the fact that 40 million people came here to live now, too. I mean, if, you're, you're, you're right. You're I mean, right. if you didn't have all these these problems from dealing with Mother Nature, that's just in itself, it's a it's a tough battle for the agriculture that remains. But we have to share it with forty million people. So, Roger, here's the th- deal: when Cal- when when the Americans decided to take California, they bit off quite a bit. Okay, they they drew a line around a thousand mile, you know, from one end to the other. And this place had 11 different states of nature in it. Okay. Let's face it. Redwoods, Valley, desert, uh, um, coast. And each place had its own challenge. And on one end of the state, it rained 140 inches a year. On the other end of the state, it rained two inches a year. And we had this decision. We could have said, okay, we've taken this vast, you know, uh, 10 latitudes here. We've taken this land and we're going to let each region exist within its own scarcity or plenitude, depending on how that was. But instead we decided that we were going to even out all those differences, that we were going to move the rain from one end to the other end. And we, and, and so, so began this kind of tinkering that became infinite and it we, we built something magical, that system, the state water project, the Central Valley project. Together, you know, we built a 440-mile-long concrete river to move the, the water from one end to the other. It, we grew three world-class cities by doing that. The, the, the most supreme, primo, you know, farm belt in the world, up and over the hill, the Silicon Valley. We did all this. But in the time of that system, we've gone from 13 million to 40 million people. And how much more can, how, how much, how much bigger can we get? I mean, we've sprawled agriculture on the ground that, that your grandfather and my grandfather would have never farmed. We've sprawled cities into the path of wildfire. We've got 10 million Californians living in the path of wildfire. Even as these places are burning down, we're planting new ones up there. 
So it's a kind of madness that I believe stems from really our original DNA, the gold rush. And, and the problem with California is, is we don't need global climate change to have climate change. I mean, we have climate change in our own DNA. We swing from drought to flood. We hardly have an average year out here. Um, it's these extremes. And so now when you have man-made climate change hitching on to our own inherent climate change that California has long had, we're seeing a kind of havoc we've never seen before. And this is what we're confronted with. How much bigger can we get? Farmland, suburbia. And, um, yeah, Mark, it's just such a sobering picture that you're that you're painting. One thing I want to broaden a little bit. I mean, it's bad enough what we've just described so far, what the challenges are, but we we go beyond our borders. Um, in the case of of water, where we're taking the west slope of Colorado, we have to. We're not just relying on what we're able to pull from the Sierras here in California, but we're also getting the Colorado river flows that are going into, into uh, here as well. So I want to broaden the audience a little bit beyond those just in California. What, there's eight or 10 states and even Mexico that are supposed to be sharing, but we take a big share of that water that's coming all the way from the Rocky Mountains. Again, not just limiting us to the Sierras. Well, it starts with L.A. L.A. runs out of its little, you know, I'll say chicken shit river, okay, the LA river. And it runs out of its groundwater. And it says by the, you know, by the, by the 1910s, man, we want to grow, but we don't have the river to grow. So they go 230 miles up and over the mountain range into Owens Valley and, 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 and steal a river. And so every region of the California has stolen, uh, uh, has stolen from another region. Some, you know, and sometimes, you know, across borders to do it. And, um, and you know, that established a kind of culture of importation. So we import our water from different regions, many of them inside the state, some outside. We import our labor from another country crossing a border. We've long done that. We import bees hundreds of millions of bees to come here and pollinate, you know, the almond harvest, the the almond crop. Um, We import chemical and everything else. So, so this is uh, not a natural system. Okay. It's a system that's reliant on importations and bending and defiance of gravity and all sorts of stuff. And at some point when you're trying to, when you're using all of that energy to prop something up, you know, something comes along and to upend it. And, and that's what we're confronted with right now. So yeah, it's a, it's a massive experiment. And I call it an experiment because it is, we, 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 we haven't proven that it, it will last forever. Well, this experiment is supplying the world with, uh, 80% of all the almonds in uh, consumed yeah. in the world, 60-some uh, percent of all the fruits and vegetables eaten in North America come from, from California now. And, and so we've, we're no, a big, about, we're we a big the, player. No, we got the biggest dairies in the world, these mega dairies. 
Mm-hmm. The the valley is fascinating. I mean, when I was growing up, the 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 chamber of commerce motto was, you know, we, we do it like no one's ever done it. We we feed the world, two hundred and thirty crops and all this, and, and that was all true. But what's happened is is because of 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 you know the farmer chasing the highest and best return, we're not as diversified as we used to be. We're not the breadbasket of America. Um, we may be the fruit basket. Uh, the, we may be the, the salad bowl, the nut bowl, I, you know, but, but more and more we're developing kind of going back to, uh, you know, kind of monoculture. Um, we, we, we've got probably right now 1.7 million acres of almonds. Some of those are non-producing one, you know, it's at least 1.5. Um, pistachios are growing too. And, you know, so we're losing some of that bragging right because we're, 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 we're growing things that were, that end up shipping out to the world. And it's just not as diversified as it used to be. And, you know, and, and a lot of it, um, is, is mechanized too, which is another reason why farmers are going that route because higher returns and less hassles with labor. You know, Mark, the picture you're painting is one that it's hard to see how it sustains. Um, and and I think what I'm you're really scared is yeah. it can't be sustained at this level. Is well, right? I, it, no, I don't think it can be at this level. I, look, at the last thing I want to see in the Central Valley, which really is, if God intended, if nature intended a place to be anything, the, 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 this place should be farmland. I mean, the, the soils, the river, the water, the sun, the Mediterranean climb. Um, I'm a, the last thing I want to see is this place paved over in the manner that the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles was paved over. Um, but the footprint of agriculture has to get smaller here. Now, this state, which is regarded as the, one of the, you know, the most progressive state in, Amer- in the United States, um, it took the, the, you know, the politicians here 175 years to finally regulate groundwater. Um, because it, it, the ground, we're extracting too much water. The land is sinking. Not only is the land sinking, the very infrastructure that we created to move the water is sinking. So, so the aqueduct is sinking, canals and ditches are sinking. So we're going to have to now regulate our extraction of groundwater, which means that, that in the San Joaquin Valley alone, and this is by the calculation of the water districts themselves and by the farmers I've talked to, we have 6 million acres of farmland here in the San Joaquin Valley. 1.5 million of those acres in all likelihood will have to be idled and fallowed so that, that we aren't extracting more groundwater than, than, than the rain years are bringing back. And that's, a, that's, a, that's not just a little haircut. That's quite a correction. Um, so this is the kind of thing we, we have to do here to try to get in balance. Or we're just going to have, you know, aquifers collapsing, going dry, uh, planting of more wells, going deeper. This is what's happening now. It's a race. You know, they're just, they're just, they're racing to the bottom and that, 
is not one, one of the many things I was impressed with in your book is at the end you have a conversation with someone who's uh, anonymous and and you kind of pose what gets on the table is this idea that maybe two million acres will be uh, set aside and 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 I believe your uh, uh, anonymous uh, guest there in the conversation was saying well that's a little high and so I just heard you say probably yeah one point five so that's pretty close. Yeah. You're, you're talking about a gentleman who's, uh, I call the Oracle. You know, every farmer in the book is named, but the Oracle was saying some things that were really challenging, you know, his neighbors and friends and family. And he said, you know, I don't know if I want my name used. Um, you know, today, you know, everybody knew who it was because no one quite speaks like this guy. His name is Dennis Prosperi. And he's a three, four generation farmer in Madeira. And, um, you know, he sold most of his almond acres. He's got a few little vineyard acres left where they're doing some wine grapes, but he's put all his money into Boise, Idaho and and places around there because he feels like this can't be sustained anymore. And so we drove around and he was showing me all these acres that in the midst of drought, the worst drought in recorded history. These were, this was open ground being planted with more almonds, more pistachios. And he said, you know, what is this? This is a kind of insanity. And the insanity was being fueled by all this easy money that the banks were loaning out at low interest rates. They were underwriting all this. And the hedge funds and everybody else were coming in. And the hedge funds, you know, they don't care about long-term. They're looking at 10 years of extracting profits. And, and so he was narrating the land, the history of the land, and going on one of these wonderful rants. And it wasn't a rant at all, actually. He was speaking the truth of what was happening to his place. And it's a tragedy of the commons, you know, it makes one sense for maybe one farmer to go onto that ground where there's no river water and pump and pump, but it doesn't make sense for a hundred of them to go on that land. And that's what we've created. Well, there's, um, we've, what we have created, as you mentioned too, is just a, a lot of, we've created new industries. We've created, you know, an almond industry, uh, that has grown, you know, hugely, uh, uh, lots of things, but we, we're we now at a spot where you're making a, a good case that it can't continue as it has in the past. So let's, can we talk about the future? Uh, if you yeah, look at where we, uh, where we are and what does it look like to you? I mean, after you've gone through and, and really l- learned so much and shared so much on the history of, of what's developed here, what worked and what didn't work, what do you come away with? What gives you some uh, some hope about uh, what it looks like in the future? Or is there hope for what it looks like in the future? Well, I think the arrival of climate change is going to open up, maybe not soon enough, but it will open up this new way of envisioning the land because we, it just can't be sustained the way we're doing it. So, um, one version is is that the hedge funds and, and pension funds, uh, they just buy more and more land, and um, the, 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 the family farmer is put out of 
business can't compete. And, and this concentration of ownership that we've seen over a half century just gets more and more concentrated. And it just feels it's the nth degree of kind of an, an industrialization. You know, uh, that would be sad, very sad. And, and the land would be farmed by, by some custom farmers here who know what they're doing. But basically all the ownership is, is, is thousands of miles away. The other, the other way that climate change, it, it, and, and this is maybe a little pie in the sky and dreamy, but I dream this dream, which is that the, the model of uh, smaller farming, organic farming, uh, ends up becoming a way into the future where we treat the soil in a way we're building up the microbial matter in the soil. We're planting cover crops. Some farmers aren't even tilling. They're going to no till. And maybe they're actually parking some of this carbon into their soil. Okay. Building that up. Um, and they're showing the way to a future where, where it's less dependence on, on chemicals more dependence on a natural system that my grandfather employed. You know, when my grandfather was growing his, his, his Thompson seedless grapes that he was turning into raisins, I mean, he wasn't using much more than just, you know, old fashioned techniques and some sulfur, uh, sulfur dust. Okay. Um, now, you know, there were some infestations of some, you know, of, of some things that would, would he'd have a hard time contending with. But I think we, the organic farming techniques have grown in such a way that maybe they can show us a way into the future where the small guy can create something where less water is actually needed on that ground, okay, uh, because of its, its fertility and its ability to absorb that water. So, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I'm going to see that that whole thing play out. I don't know if I have, you know, and, and, but this is, this is our choice here. And, um, I'd like to at least hold on to the hope that maybe the organic guys, maybe the smaller guys who have found a way to actually grow bigger. I mean, you know, some of the organic farmers, I think I was told that the organic farmer of the year this year was owns 36,000 acres of ground. Uh, is it, you know, are those two things incompatible? You know, I guess not. I'm talking about those smaller guys who are doing some extraordinary experiments, how those might be extended um, by bigger guys. Um, well, that's, that's, an, that's an important distinction you've just made there, because uh, while you identify organic and other kinds of uh, kind of approaches to be sustainable, um, you surprised us all by reaching out and giving an example of one that's 36,000 acres. And, and so production practices uh, really aren't limited to just being small. I don't know where this guy is. I was just talking to an old time. Uh, uh, um, organic farmer, a wonderful vegetable grower in Madeira, mm -hmm. uh, who's now retired. And he was saying, you know, he wrote me a note saying the organic farmer of the year is owns 36,000 acres. And I thought, okay, well, he didn't even tell me where this guy's at. He, for all I know, he may be in the Midwest. 
Um, you know, but we've got Driscoll Farms out here doing berries in, in, in uh, along the coast. I mean, they've industrialized. Um, um, you know, um, my heart is with the smaller guy. That's what I buy. Um, you know, um, the smaller guy, I, I think his, his berries are, are taste different than a Driscoll berry. Um, his carrots taste better than, a, a you know, the old Grimway carrots. Um, but, you know, I think there's room for all of that. But I, I think that is the mode. Well, some of our large dairies, for example, uh, are going to other states now. Do you suppose they'll take a California attitude with them? I mean, some really large dairies are now going to South Dakota, some to Idaho, some to Texas, and so forth, transplanted they have uh, to. Californians. They have to. We, we, our water and soil are too valuable in California to really support mega dairies. And I, I, I upset my Dutch friends, dairy friends. I upset my Azorean Portuguese dairy friends. But really, the mega dairy experiment in California, that needs to end. I, I know they're trying now to do these methane digesters, which are kind of look to me like laundering operations to make things look better. And they're growing, they're having even more Holsteins to create more, you know, manure to put through these digesters. That seems to me to be an ass backward, uh, excuse the metaphor way of operating. Really, the, the, the dairies went from Southern California and Chino up and over the mountain here. And um, they pollute the groundwater, they pollute the air. They're a major source of our air pollution here. We've got the worst particulate matter in the country in the San Joaquin Valley. And, and the summers are really brutal on the Holsteins here too. And I think to make happy cows, they really need to go somewhere else. The megas. Yeah. Small well, dairy, they're sustainable. Mark, uh, you've spent years now, decades, telling the stories of agriculture, food, agriculture, the state of California, all of this, all of this history. I wonder what you feel about all the attention to stories these days. You hear people that are marketers saying consumers want to know a story, um, but they're thinking the story needs to fit on the back of a label, you know, or, or, a, or a package or something yeah. that talks about how the, how the farmers are growing the product and, and maybe not buying a 500 page book to see the, the, the full story. How do you feel about that? Well, you've just hit on, on one of the things that might save us. Um, you know, Pandel, the grape grower, who's trying to, who's bending grapes in a different way, you know, creating grapes that taste like cotton candy. And we can have an argument over the aesthetics of that all day long, but, but he's, he's got a story to tell. It's a century and a, a more of a family on the ground there in Delano and places like that. Uh, John Kirkpatrick, who's growing these citrons that he sells to Hasidic Jews for one of their, you know, high holy days. And he's made it work. Uh, so, so I love the fact that they can put their own little story on the back of a label. I happen to tell their stories on the pages of the Dremplan. So, so I don't see those things as mutually exclusive at all. And, and that kind of story, and, and it's a little precious. You know, we have these foodies who like to know where they're buying their food from. But that preciousness may turn, you know, 
may, may take us into a direction that's actually sustainable. And, and so, yeah, more of that. I'd love to see more of that. Well, I tell you, you helped create more of that today. I, I want to thank you for taking some some time to have this journey. There's so much more to say, and and certainly you've done a, a really good job of telling those stories in your books. Um, and we're telling a story today that's a little over a half an hour that people will hear a story that we're talking about agriculture and. And I share your enthusiasm for people telling their stories, whether they have to boil it down to get to a label. But I'm encouraged by the fact that there are more and more consumers, people that want to know how their food's grown and and want to understand more than they understand right now. And they certainly can't go wrong if they're trying to understand more by picking up your books. And and certainly reading the Dreamt Land, spelled D-R-E-A-M-T, Dreamt Land. And um, I just want to thank you for being on Farm to Table. Yeah, no, no. I, I listen. I love doing this. Your you, you know your knowledge and and what you do. Thank you. I mean, it's a biblical story. I mean, it's drought, flood, a man, hubris, greed, will, um, magic defiance of gravity. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's an incredible story. Um, I grew up here dumb to it. I hope when I'm, you know, written my last word that I'm a little less dumb. <laughs> I, I, nobody would say that you, that you're dumb. You've got insights into this and, and <laughs> Mark, Mark Arox, I really appreciate your sharing a little bit of the story today and, and people will find more at eco farm where you're speaking and, other events that you might be speaking at and looking for your articles and looking for a future book from you as well. So, Mark, thanks again for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thanks, Roger. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 